From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you'd like to ask Father a question, pick up the phone and give us a call. We've got open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada... Your number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And Michael McCall with an aide for with a little help from Ace McKay will be taking care of your social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can just type a question into the chat window. And our host is he is every Thursday. Father Brian Mullady, are those are those bees that are buzzing around you over there? I don't know. I thought you were making uh, candles or something, maybe. No. No. Gosh, no. Well, if you were know. going to, today would be the day, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that was that was a very clumsy attempt to lead into what you wanted to talk about today. Great. <laughs> okay. Uh, today I wanted to talk about Candlemas Day, which is today's feast, the priest of the presentation of our Lord. And we've had a number of questions over the last month as when Christmas actually ends. Well, this is it. Officially, it's done today. And you may wonder why it's done. Well, first of all, it's 40 days after Christmas, and Jewish males had to, uh, on the 40th day, go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Their parents obviously did it for them, in which they were, in a sense, bought back because of their uh, salvation from Egypt to be a member of Israel. Not only that, but a woman who had born children had to go, could not enter the temple for 40 days until she experienced her purification. So today's feast has often done double duty. One is the presentation of the Lord, and the Orthodox Church celebrates this as the beating of the Lord because the Lord of the temple as a baby, comes to meet the temple. It's also been the purification of the Blessed Virgin because Mary has to come there. Now, uh, she doesn't have to go there because she doesn't have any sin at all. But she does this out of obedience and humility. And what was the reason for the purification of women? Well, it's twofold, actually. One is, of course, the obvious one, that they participated in bringing someone into the world by childbearing who shares in the original sin. 
But the other one is more positive, and that is that because a soul has been created in the woman, then she has participated in a divine and holy act. And if she is to be returned to ordinary company, she has to be purified of that. In the same way we talk about the purification of vessels at Mass, you know, before we put the chalice back in the cupboard, we purify it because it's held the precious blood. So this is a more positive reason. This is one of the oldest feasts in the church, and it's testified by many, many people who visited Israel in the 3rd or 4th century. Simeon and Anna are witnesses to this presentation, and they represent all of Israel waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries for Jesus saves, for Jesus, for the Messiah. And when Simeon sees the child, he finally realizes that he's seen the consolation of Israel. That is to say, he who's just and pious has seen the reason the world exists made manifest to him. Remember, manifestation of light is something that's a very important theme for Epiphany. So he takes the child in his arms, who's waited his whole life, and he says the canticle, which the church now places at the end of the day in Compline or evening prayer, now you, night prayer, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My eyes have seen your salvation. And we put this as a prayer, yes, for sleeping, but also to prepare for death, because Simeon's now seen the truth. And the fact that the truth is a matter of light, enlightenment, is demonstrated in his two little things he says after. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the terms are chosen very judiciously because phos, or light, is the means by which we know philosophical truths through our intelligence. The glory is the holy cloud, the Shekinah, that cover Mount Sinai and fill the temple when the altar was, uh, the, the sacrifices were offered there, because this glory is the very presence of God himself, and both are identified, in other words, the Jews and the Gentiles, Athens and uh, Jerusalem, with this child. And so on this day, it was a customary for the faithful to bring their candles to church to be blessed because the candle symbolized the light of divine revelation that was totally shown to us in our Lord, whereas you know, the physical rituals of the temple and the physical sacrifices are all completed in him now. So our temple and our altar and our priest and our victim are him. He is the light. And so this day has been called, in English, it was, you know, uh, the terms were put together. So we have the mass of the candles or candle mass day, candlemas day. And that's why we celebrate this. Because the um, light that began to dawn with the promises of Advent and the prophets is now fulfilled in the culmination of Christmas, 
because he's now, of course, we enter into the whole mystery of his being present on earth and of his passion and death. But who he is is finally revealed. The divine person of the Trinity with the divine nature took to himself not a human person, but a human nature, body, blood, and soul in order that he might be a conduit of divine light to the darkness of our souls. So on this Candlemas Day, we ask God to not only illuminate the world through physical candles, and there's a beautiful procession that accompanies this in the more solemn celebrations of the liturgy today, in which the community sings the light of revelation to the Gentiles, and glory of your people Israel, while they're carrying the blessed candles, symbolizing our progress and our journey toward the final completion of all sacrifice and sacraments, which is in heaven. So, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And because we've seen it, now God can dismiss us in peace. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That phone number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. If you'd rather send us an email, we'd be happy to correspond with you via that medium. Simply send us an email. The email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put Father Milady or Thursday or something like that in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. Straight ahead, we'll talk to George in Pennsylvania, Paula in Missouri, and we hope to talk from you to, to you rather as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Mulady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's right. We've got one open line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Our first stop today is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. George is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. George, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Well, thank you, Father, for taking my call. Uh, My question has to do with... My question has to do with, on every Wednesday we say the rosary, 
And I like to put things in context, like, you know, the resurrection took three days, the ascension took 40, the descent was 10 days later. After Christ ascended to heaven, how long was it before the assumption happened? Was it be like 20 years, or do you have any idea how long it was before the assumption occurred after the ascension, and then when did the Church create the coronation? Because I don't think there was like a... I don't think that was tied to an event on Earth. That was something the Church must have developed, huh? Uh, Okay, let's take each of your questions in succession. There is no source for how long the Virgin Mary was on Earth after the Ascension. So, in other words, the answer to your question is there is no time limit in any source. So we don't know that. Regarding the coronation of the Virgin, that's a conclusion of theology, and it basically reflects the book of Revelation with the woman, you know, in chapter 11, with the woman with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars. And uh, so, again, it's not a time-bound sort of thing. It takes place in eternity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- 288-3986. We head next to Union, Missouri. Paula is listening on Covenant Radio. Paula, you're on with Dr. Uh, Doctor. How am I doing? Father Brian Milady. 489. Anything else for you? No, thank you. Tell you what, we'll come back to Paula when she's finished uh, transacting her business there. Uh, instead, we'll try Rachel in Carrollton, Texas. Uh, Rachel's listening on Guadalupe. Well, correction, Rachel's not ready either. Tell you what, Father, we'll answer an email while we're waiting on everybody to get their their act together here. Uh, Brian wants to know, why would God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden if Adam and Eve were not meant to eat from it? Oh, because it was meant to be a boundary um, to demonstrate that all they had was a matter of gift and love. And God, of course, placed one small boundary on them to demonstrate the fact that he was God and not them. And you remember they were tempted by Satan to eat the fruit of the tree because they were told they'd be like gods and they'd experience an awakening uh, in which they know the difference between good and evil. Well, Satan wasn't lying in a sense. Uh, There's always half-truths in everything. But the knowledge which he spoke of was not speculative knowledge, but it was the, because they had to have known that not to make the choice, but it was the practical knowledge of doing it. And so once they did that, they for for the first time experienced what it was like not to have uh, God as someone with whom they walked and talked intimately in the garden. And God, in a sense, and man became rivals of course, they lose, <laughs> but they became rivals for um, control, really, or domination of the world, as you could say, which men can't do. So, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Now we'll head to Carrollton, Texas, and uh, speak with Rachel who is listening to us on Guadalupe Radio. Rachel, you're on with Father Milady. Thank you very much. Um, Father, um, I understand that Mary was not obligated, actually, to go and wash, as was the custom 
after the 40 days of uh, following the 40, the 40 days that were required for most women to go wash because of the fact that um, uh, they're unclean this regarding childbirth. But I, I have come to understand and learn that as of last year, that Mary did not experience the typical childbirth, that our Lord actually passed through her body like a ray through crystal. And I was extremely shocked, and I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed that I've, it's taken so many years for me to find this out. And that would be my first question, if you would confirm that. And the second is that tomorrow is the Feast of St. Blaise, in which uh, we go to our churches to have our throats blessed, and I think it's a tradition that has sort of gone mm, by the wayside, and I don't know, my particular uh, pastor at Mass did not mention, and I just would like to know why mm, this custom has not been observed. All right, well, in answer to your first question, that's a heresy, what you just said. Uh, Mary, uh, Jesus did not pass through her body like a flash of lightning. Jesus had to take flesh from her. In fact, there's a famous icon which was condemned by the Eastern Church as heretical, in which Gabriel's bringing the already formed Christ down and putting it in Mary's womb. No, that's why we say ex Maria Virgine in the Creed, from out of the Virgin Mary. And so the way it was put in the early church was he passed through water, her like water through a channel. It's called the Valentinian heresy. You could look it up. It's been condemned. I don't know who told you that, but they were wrong. Uh, secondly, I don't know where you live, but we're having the blessing of throats tomorrow here. And there are many, many churches that still observe this custom. But many of the faithful come specifically to have this done. So again, I don't know where you live, but the blessing of the throats is still a custom, and it's still a commonly used custom. Some priests might be against it because they might think it's superstitious. We don't. We're not. In the parish I'm in, and also in many parishes I know, they still have the blessing of the throats. Yeah, blessing of the throats is alive and well here in Birmingham also, Rachel. You may take a, a look around at some nearby parishes to you there and see if maybe you can find one that can accommodate you on uh, tomorrow. Uh, now we'll try Paula again in Union, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Paula, are you there? Yeah, I apologize for my snafu. Um, <laughs> Not a problem. Go right ahead. I call, I called one other radio person, but they didn't answer my question. Um, so I will explain to you why I want to know the answer, and that is I need to know if I can go to communion or not if I happen to commit gluttony. So what's the line between venial gluttony and mortal gluttony? Oh, well, that's actually rather interesting. Gluttony is, generally speaking, only a venial sin. The only time it can become mortal is if your love of food is so great that it leads you, well, to commit murder to get the kind of food you want or to have cooks give notice uh, uh, because you're attacking them and the harried waitress, you know, forcing them to bring you your food, uh, having gluttony of delicacy, which is, well, all I want is the teensiest, weensiest little bit of crisp toast, but you can't find anybody who's able to do that. 
and you don't think you're practicing gluttony because what you want is small. Gluttony is not a matter of big or small. Gluttony has to do with your your belly dominating your life. And if you want to get an example of the person, people who love or prize food so much that they actually committed murder, the frugal gourmet who's kind of passed out of favor. You know, he was very big in the early 90s on PBS. He said in his cookbook that there was an emperor of China who prized a kind of mushroom so much that he actually committed murder to get it for his food. Now, that would definitely be a mortal sin of gluttony. Or if you were to drink to excess, for example, and become intoxicated so that you, you know, could reason, that might be a mortal sin of gluttony, too. But normally speaking, gluttony is a venial sin. God bless you, Paula. We appreciate that phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jeff wants to know why the assumption of Mary is a dogma. The assumption of Mary is a dogma because it reflects a singular privilege the church has always accorded to her. And the difficulty with the dogma was always a debate about whether Mary had actually died or not. Now, everybody but the Franciscans thinks she experienced a kind of death. But even their understanding is very much like what the other people think death involves, too. She certainly did not experience a corrupting death because, remember, she didn't experience original sin. But she did experience a passage from this life to the next. And the way I like to put it is that it's kind of like in Snow White, you know, where she eats the poisoned apple and she falls into the sleep of living death so that she's dead, but she still has the rosy cheeks, you know, and the beauty, her beauty is not marred or anything like that. So Mary's in the being in the grave is sort of like that. And because our Lord rose from the dead, the church has always attributed to Mary the singular privilege of also sharing in that as the only one who ever did. So that's why it's, it's a dogma. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 Three nine eight six. Be sure to check. Be sure, rather, to check out Catholic Answers Live tonight at six p.m. Eastern Time. Tonight they have two hours of Q and A open forum. Hour number one, Tom Nash, and hour number two, Jimmy Aiken. Again, that's Catholic Answers Live tonight, six p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Gloria in South Texas, Elizabeth in Cincinnati. RC in the great state of Idaho, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. The number again is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. You may think, I don't live in North America. That's fine because we've got a number for you. That number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, 
and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. 833-288-EWTN's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday, live with Dominican father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Gloria is a first-time caller in South Texas watching us on YouTube today. Gloria, thank you so much for holding on. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. So I went to confession, it's been about six months ago, and made a good confession, I thought. It had been a while. During this confession, I did uh, tell the Father that I was in a marriage that was not through the Catholic Church, and my husband had not had his first marriage annulled through the Church. In the end, he did not absolve me of my sins, so my question is, can I be absolved of my sins if I am in this marriage that he has not had his first annulled? Well, the bigger question is, you're not married in the church. And the right. reason you can't get married in the church is because his first marriage hasn't been annulled. But, uh, you know, we don't recognize marriage that isn't marriage in the church for Catholics. So that means you're having sex outside of marriage on a permanent basis at least a semi-permanent or habitual basis. So that means that as long as you're in that state, you're in a, you can't be absolved from your sins because you have to be freed from that particular state in order for that to occur. So what you need to do is uh, seek an annulment. Yes, and that's where after going to confession, we had a good discussion, and, and that's what we touched on. And I'm not using this as an excuse, but the fact is that when we were preparing to get married twice, I I set two dates in the church in anticipation of his marriage being annulled. They suggested, let's make two dates just in case it takes a little longer. Surely it'll be resolved by then. In the end, the paperwork at his office was misplaced. And so we got married just for the peace with the intentions of following through, and I guess that's what I need to do now. But I guess what threw me off was, so prior to this marriage, I was married. I was widowed from that first marriage, but I, I guess that's what the threw issue me off is. Yeah, the issue isn't your marriage because you're not married. Uh, you know, your husband's is dead. The issue is his. What state was it in? And uh, that's what is the impediment to you getting married in the church. Is he Catholic? Yes, yes, yes. 
Was he married in the church or outside the church? No, in the church, Catholic church. It's been ages ago that he was married, and I okay, think so was encouraged. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. So I think what discouraged us was the fact that we did what we had to do, and the church failed by misplacing this paperwork. And yeah, so, um, and the questions that were asked, he's like, this happened, you know, what, 25, 30 years ago, and they want me to go back. And, and she's the first wife he was married to, has also remarried. She has her family. So, oh, well, that's extraneous yeah. in the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you're dealing with lawyers, <laughs> and you're dealing with uh, lawyers that often don't have what would you say um, professional legal teams. The and so paperwork is sometimes yeah. misplaced. Because the lawyers are usually priests who are doing other things and basically have been to work on the things, but it depends on who the secretary is that has all the stuff. And so I would not get discouraged in that regard, but I would seek this again. And I might emphasize the fact that I'm a little perturbed because they lost all the stuff before. There must be a copy of it somewhere if they if they were dealing with the computers at all. Um, but I, I don't know. So I, I would... Um, I, I understand what your problem is, and unfortunately, it's all too ha often happens, and part of this is because of the limit, bureaucratic limitations of the Chancery Office. But you really need to revive the case See if they don't have something on computer that can advance it along. But the first, really the next step would be to go to the pastor of her parish, huh, Father? Yes, although if they lost the stuff in the chancery office. Um, Is it the know, same parish, Gloria, that you went to? Yes, so we're, we're still in the same. I would end up going back to the same. It might be a different father now in the church, yeah. where we go to church. So that's, you, yeah. What we're interested in is whether it's the same priest or not. That's what I... I don't think so. I don't well, the, in the case, if it were, for one thing, he knows something about the case already, which would make it much easier uh, if he was all interested in it. If it's not, you've got to, you know, inform this new person and see what could be done by searching the chancery again. Um, there might still be stuff there that they just didn't, they overlooked. Because there's a high turnaround of staff in this particular area for some reason. People only last a couple of years. And I'm not talking about the priests that finally make the case. I'm talking about the lay staff that supports them. And with regard to the time that's passed, the church would only require her husband to do the best that he could, right, Father, with regard sure, to Sure, of course. Yeah. A, well, you can't do anything else. That's it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So God bless you, Gloria. We will keep you in our prayers, and I would uh, uh, stick your nose in the door with the pastor there and see what can be worked out for you. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Elizabeth, a first-time caller in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Elizabeth, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have a question. In the Bible, it says um, when you pray, don't pray in repetition um, like the... um, uh, whoever they are, the priest back then, <laughs> who think they might be heard. But then the church wants you to pray the rosary, which is pretty comp- uh, repetitive. So what is the right way to pray? Well, first of all, you're talking about apples and oranges. Because if you were aware of paganism, the pagans believe that unless they mentioned every god, their prices don't multiply prayers, Right. I don't believe it says in repetition. I think it says don't multiply them. So they uh, believed that unless they mentioned every single God, their prayer wouldn't be heard. We don't. The rosary is primarily a means of meditation. And it's not a repetitive prayer in that sense. We don't believe if we skip an Our Father or skip a Hail Mary that our prayer won't be heard. What we're trying to do is establish a climate of meditation on various aspects of our Lord's life. And you know, it originally was the 150 Psalms. Now, if you want to memorize the 150 Psalms uh, in order to, I think that would be great. I don't. I think it's very hard to do. I say the Psalter every day. And in the Middle Ages, when Our Lady devotion came more to the fore, and also when they were trying to make the spiritual life more accessible to the laity, they switched to the Hail Mary. Now, of course, we have 200 now, uh, with John Paul II adding some mysteries. But the original impetus was to memorize the 150 Psalms, which I'm sure you know is very hard. So it has nothing to do with um, repetitious prayer. It has to do with um, people who think that unless they've mentioned absolutely every intention and every uh, thought they had or whatever, that somehow it won't be granted. I mean, I've known people that um, they've had their devotion cards in their prayer book, and there's like 50 of them, and they believe they have to get through all 50 devotions in one day. Uh, That's part of the sort of thing he's talking about. Also, remember, he says very specifically they love to play on the street corners in order to be seen by men. He's talking about the intention with which you make your prayer, which is not to praise God, but it's to be ostentatious. And remember, we read that particular reading in Ash Wednesday before Lent because we want to be sure that we're praying from a right intention because the New Testament, the new law of Christ, is the Holy Spirit dwelling in our souls. And so it's more than just a matter of saying words, like babbling on, as Jesus says, like the pagans do. It's a matter of heartfelt union with the living God. And the rosary is just an attempt to provide a climate in which that's made easier. So they're, they're not talking about the same thing at all. It's one of the reasons why it's very dangerous to lift one tiny phrase out of Scripture and try to create a theology around it. Yeah, and it should also be noted, too, Elizabeth, the, the verse that's most commonly cited here is in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and there's a little adjective that got left out there 
because what it speaks against is vain repetition. All right. God bless you. Go ahead, Father. Go ahead. Thanks, Elizabeth. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is R.C. in Garden City, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. R.C., you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hi, gentlemen. How are you today? Terrific, thanks. Good. I have a question about scholarly atheists. I was um, just looking at a list of, I guess it was the top 50 atheists, and one of them had um, professed Christianity. He, he professed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he had started doing some really heavy research into Scripture. And as he started doing this research, he started gaining more doubts. And I'm kind of curious, from a scholarly point of view, what is the fuel that an atheist has from Scripture that ha- allows him to be an atheist. Did that make sense? It, it makes sense, but you'd have to tell me what the error is. I mean, I can't just talk about this in abstract. Uh, what I will say is that it's possible for some people to only read certain sources that underline the Scriptures and not read others. But there are plenty of sources that... Um, I'm astonished sometimes at how much archaeological evidence there is for the scriptures. And secondly, the theology of the scriptures does entail a certain kind of metaphysics, a philosophical position. And some people don't accept that philosophical position. And then when they come to uh, try to deal with the Bible, they don't know how to do it because they look on it from one philosophical position, but the person who authored the text looked on it from another philosophical position. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We head next to Chicago, Illinois. Linda is in Chicago listening on WSFI Radio. Linda, you're on with Father Milady. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm currently a candidate in the Catholic Church. I haven't received uh, my communion or confirmation just yet. I'm currently uh, in RCIA. But I was wondering, um, why was uh, Jesus circumcised, and um, what is the significance of it, and why um, is circumcision not practiced in the Catholic Christian faith? Okay. Well, this is a problem they had in the early Church. First of all, the circumcision basically was commanded in the Old Testament. It's a manner in which males physically become members of Israel, not just by uh, inheritance of a certain ethnic group, but also, um, like baptism, are fully accepted as true Jewish members of the Jewish faith. Circumcision is a symbol, in a sense, because the member by which the human race is propagated, there's nothing wrong with it, it's, it's good, but it's the, way, the member by which sin is also propagated because the human race is propagated by it. So that's why perhaps the Lord chose that as a symbol. And you'll notice women, have, it's, women it's difficult to see them in full members of Israel because they can't experience this. 
Thirdly, it's an extremely painful operation. That's why they do it for babies, right? Apparently who can't feel it that much. So when our Lord came, the question was, did you have to undergo circumcision, and especially as an adult, in order to be a member of Christianity? And it was one of the things that kept people from converting to Judaism. For example, the centurion, remember it says he was a sympathizer with the Jewish faith. He even built the synagogue, but he never became a Jew. He was always a Gentile. And the reason partially is because he didn't want to go undergo circumcision as an adult. Apparently there are people that do it, but it's not. It's rare and it's not easy. So um, our Lord, of course, in approving the ritual of John the Baptist of the washing in water, connected that with what had been done in the Old Testament with circumcision. So that everyone, male and female, everywhere, Jew and Gentile, might experience union with him. So St. Paul argued against forcing people to undergo circumcision, and the apostles agreed with him, because it's not necessary anymore. The pain isn't necessary, and again, you're in some sense excluding women who are equal Christians with us, and also the the washing ritual of baptism, the water, more symbolizes the introduction of new life and the death of the old life. And so even though circumcision was a ritual of the Old Testament and not the new, Christ stands between the two. And so he, uh, he obeys while he's uh, able to, up until the Passion, the directions of the old law. In fact, there's a line in uh, the hymn, uh, one of the Eucharistic comes with Thomas Aquinas, I think it's Pange Lingua, the English translation says, he obeys the law's direction even as the old law ends. And he does this from humility and faith. So Mary, again, doesn't have to undergo this uh, purification because, of course, she's not only personally without sin, but she didn't bring forth anybody from original sin. Christ doesn't have original sin. But she does this in order to show obedience and to approve the right of the Old Testament as it's about to change to a fuller and more complete expression. God bless you, Linda. We'll keep you in our prayers as you continue your journey into the Catholic Church. Um, next up is Gene in Key Largo, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Gene, you're on with Father Milady. Hi. Yes. My question is that someone very close to me is... Uh, I know has done a mortal sin and I spoke to them about it but they have continued to go to communion and I don't really know what to do at this point. <laughs> what to do at this point is to stay out of it. It's none of your business. It's between the soul and God. If you sought to inform the person that you think what they're doing is wrong and they don't pay any attention to you, then your responsibility, whatever it might be, is ended. 
And we can't have people going around to everybody else, all their neighbors, telling them they know they're guilty of mortal sin. Because sometimes you may be mistaken too. And all kinds of harm can be wrought by that. So now that you've done what you're able to do, you just back off and let that person, uh, you know, discuss it with our Lord. That's the primary place. Thanks, Gene. We appreciate the call today. Uh, Marilyn would like to know, is it true to say that God the Father was born of Mary? No. The, that's a heresy. There was only one person of the three persons that was born of Mary. You can say God was born of Mary because that doesn't distinguish the persons, only the nature. But you can't say God as God was born of Mary because uh, God doesn't get born from human beings. And you can't say the Father or the Holy Spirit was born of Mary because they weren't. Only Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, he was born of Mary. So what you're reflecting is a famous difficulty called the communication of idioms, which is how you interchangeably use words for the divine and human nature concerning our Lord. Um, and if you're using the nature in general, you can communicate the idioms. In other words, exchange the expressions. So you can say uh, Jesus, for example, especially that's a person, Jesus created the stars. But you can't say Jesus as man created the stars. Because only Jesus as God could create the stars. And you can say God died on the cross, or Jesus died on the cross, but you can't say uh, um, God as the Father died on the cross. Because only one person became incarnate, and therefore only one person can die. Bailey writes in, what does the church teach about a marriage between people of different faiths? Uh, well, ideally, we ask you to try to marry people of your own faith just because it uh, stimulates the faith, and it's very difficult to swim against the goad if you seriously disagree on, on anything, really. Finances is a big deal, but even larger is religion. So what we do is we encourage people to make people aware of what the Catholic teaching is concerning marriage, which is basically they have to agree to raise the children as Catholic. And they don't say that anymore as a promise. They say they know that's an obligation of the Catholic party, basically. But still, it's recognizing the fact that it exists. And secondly, you, 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 know, you can get married, but you can't, you're not in a Christian marriage if they're not baptized. If they're baptized, you're in a Christian marriage even if it was before a justice of the peace, for them, not for you. Because uh, we don't recognize marriages with justice of the peace for uh, Catholics. And Belinda wants to know, how do I explain apostolic succession to my Protestant friend who believes that succession ended when the apostles died? <laughs> well, <laughs> if it ended when the apostles died, I mean, how do we know it is succession? How do we know it is the same church? You know, why would on earth would our Lord institute the apostolic succession and have it end when Jesus died? Plus the fact 
there are all kinds of early church sources, contemporary almost, with St. John. You can think of Ignatius of Antioch, or there are others that recognize, and even St. Paul, though he uses a more ambiguous language, recognizes leadership in the church as bishops and priests and deacons and things like that. Now, he might not have meant exactly what we mean by it today, but so it was quite obvious they were looking on as successors to the apostles. Kim in New York called in. She couldn't hang on the line, but she wants to know how Michael the Archangel is a saint if he's not a person. He is a person. Uh, uh, he's not a human person, but a person is defined as an individual with a rational nature. So God has three persons. All the angels are persons. We're all persons. But we're just not divine persons, and they're not human persons. And angels are not divine or human persons. They're angelic persons. So that's how he can be holy. And finally today, Joe in Spartanburg, South Carolina, listening on WSEJ, called in and wanted to know what was in the Holy of Holies in the first century, and how was it still a temple? Um, now, I, I'm not sure about this, but the ark, as you know, was lost and never recovered. And as I, during the, I think, the Babylonian captivity, and when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, four or five centuries before Christ, uh, as far as I remember, the Holy of Holies was empty. And uh, it was covered by veils, of course, and they had an altar outside of it, I think. The high priest entered it, but they were waiting for the Messiah to come back, as far as I remember it. But I could be mistaken about that without reading up on it. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, with some assistance on the social media side from Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, will be here tomorrow for EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.